In a day where a fire is more likely to happen, you will be very hot. You will be feeling very dry wind coming through your skin and you will feel very low relative humidity. So it's a very dry environment. When it's uh, so dry and so hot and windy, if there is a fire, it happens very quickly and that fire spreads uh, very quickly as well. What you see is dust. You can hear some crispy sounds of the leaves drying down. It's really, really hot and the smoke makes you very difficult to breathe and also it's a bit inchy in your eyes. Yeah, it's quite an intense feeling. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. Whether you remember it or not, in 2020, the world was on fire. Australia lost 45 million acres, an area larger than the state of Florida, to bushfires. California had its first ever gigafire, which is a fancy name for a wildfire that single-handedly burns up more than a million acres in one go. In Brazil, around 20,000 square kilometers or a quarter of the world's largest tropical wetland burned. And remember how Dr. Annette Barge told us the Arctic could burn? Well, in 2020, more than 18,000 fires in Siberia alone consumed almost 35 million acres and released more than half a billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. As climate change continues to intensify, so too will global wildfires. A recent United Nations report estimates that the occurrence of extreme catastrophic fires could increase by 30% by 2050. This fire forecast points to a very urgent need to share information and work together globally to manage and prevent fires. So today, that's what we're doing. Chatting with two different scientists to study fire in two completely opposite environments, the Australian bush and the Amazon rainforest. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. This committee is all about empowering engineers and scientists to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is through the Women Mentoring Women program. This mentorship program runs for a year and fosters careers and friendships across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more, visit grss-ieee.org and select IDEA from the community header menu. For a bushfire to occur, we need basically three ingredients. We need a fuel, and we need this fuel to be dry enough to burn. We need also weather conditions that are hot, dry, and windy. And then we also need a source of ignition. This is Dr. Marta Yebra. She's an associate professor in environmental engineering at both the Fenner School of Environment and Society, as well as the School of Engineering. She's also the director of the new Australian National University Optus Bushfire Research Center of Excellence, which opened in 2020. 
Bushfires have been part of the landscape for many years and they normally occur uh, with uh, some specific fire regimes. But with climate change, these fire regimes are changing because uh, climate indirectly affects many of these ingredients I previously mentioned. Marsh's expertise is in studying what's called the fuel load, which is basically the given amount of flammable material in a natural environment. Using remote sensing techniques, she creates maps that help decision makers react quicker to fire risks. Let's learn more. So a fuel load is any kind of material that can burn and in a forest fire is any vegetation, any standing vegetation or a material that is standing on the ground like leaf litter that can potentially burn if there is a, a source of ignition. There are many different remote sensing techniques uh, and sensors that can track changes in fuel. And by fuel, mainly I refer to three different properties of the fuel. We talk about fuel load, that is how much vegetation or fuel there is in a specific area. Then we have the fuel moisture content, that is how wet or dry that vegetation is. And the other property uh, we can monitor with remote sensing is the fuel structure. So what's the arrangement of that fuel in a forest? For example, are there a lot of uh, fuel layers in a forest that may um, facilitate the fire to propagate from the ground to the canopy? Or is a very simple fuel structure where we only have a, an overstory canopy and nothing underneath? So all these properties of the fuel are very important for bushfire risk and behavior, and they can all be monitored with different remote sensing techniques. And what kind of data do you use to track the fuel load? With optical data coming from uh, remote sensing sensors as MODIS from the NASA or Sentinel-2 from the European Space Agency, can be used to track uh, changes in moisture content. And this is because when the solar radiation hits the surface of the leaves of the vegetation, depending on how much water the vegetation has, there is more or less absorption of, of that uh, solar radiation in certain areas of the electromagnetic spectrum. And when there is a lot of water, there is a lot of absorption in the solar infrared, that is a region of the spectrum. And therefore, there is less reflectance back to the sensors. And because of these differences in the way the vegetation reflects the solar radiation, uh, you can then use some modeling approaches to convert the data coming from the sensors into a fuel moisture content maps. Right. And I know this is probably an obvious answer, but how is moisture content linked to fuel load? Yes. So when the vegetation is wet, the amount of heat that needs to be transferred from the ignition source to the fuel to dry out all the water that is inside of the plant is a lot greater. So therefore, the ignition time is longer. So it takes more to ignite a fuel that is wet than it takes to ignite a fuel that is dry. And because it takes uh, longer to ignite a single particle in what we call the fuel bed, it also takes longer for the fire to propagate. Because yeah, every time it needs to ignite, let's say a new leaf, it needs to evaporate all that water that is 
inside the, the vegetation. So that's basically uh, in simple words how fuel moisture content influences the flammability of the fuel. So how accurately can you determine how the fire will burn? Yes, that's a very good question because, of course, once you have this information about the fuel, uh, so how much fuel load, uh, there is a specific area, and how dry that fuel is, and what's the structure of that uh, fuel or the arrangement, the vertical and the horizontal arrangement of that fuel, then you need to convert that into fire risk. So how likely a fire is to occur given a certain certain fuel conditions. And um, there are a lot of different approaches to that end. But for example, in terms of fuel moisture content, there are some certain uh, threshold values that explain uh, larger fires and more fires. These thresholds uh, or critical moisture content values are different uh, depending on the land cover type. For example, for, for grassland, normally we have values that are lower than for forests. And we determine these critical values of moisture content looking at historical time series of uh, fire occurrence coming also from uh, satellite data, uh, like the MODIS burned area product, and the fuel moisture content conditions during those specific fires. And looking into these two databases uh, together, you can come up with those critical values that normally explain uh, the larger fires or more number of fires in, in a specific year or location. Are there any monitoring centers in the country that watch these factors and then deliver warnings to decision makers? Yes, uh, definitely. Of course, uh, at a national scale, we have the Australian Fire Danger Rating System that has been recently updated. We were using in Australia a very old system that was developed in the 60s. But uh, this year in September, we are going to implement a totally new Australian National Fire Danger Rating Index. And then, uh, yes, there are different systems that uh, monitor different components of all these ingredients uh, we need also for having a fire. In terms of the fuel moisture content, that is a specific uh, expertise we developed the Australian Flammability Monitoring System. So this system is a web server that provides maps of the vegetation moisture content. So how dry or wet uh, the vegetation is and the associated flammability of the landscape using satellite data uh, from also MODIS. And we provide this every five days. And this uh, website is open for any individual or any fire agency or land management agency for them to, to check what's the dryness condition of the landscape at any time. The Australian Flammability Monitoring System sounds like it would be a very useful tool for decision makers when it comes to fire prevention. I mean, if they know an area is extra dry, they can keep an eye on whether ignition occurs in that area. And now you're working as the director of the Australian National University's Optus Bushfire Research Center of Excellence. Can you tell us more about the center? Yes, sure. So the aim of the center overall is uh, early fire detection and extinction. And we decided to focus in this area because during the 19 and 2020 bushfire season in Australia that uh, you may remember because of the news uh, that it was very catastrophic and unprecedented. And we realized that there was a lack of 
availability to track and, and do first attack in those fires early when they are small and very easy to control. We created this center with the aim of developing different technologies uh, to detect fires when they are small and then extinguish them before they become large and uncontrollable. So um, uh, in the center, we are following a layer approach for early fire detection. We are combining sensors on board of different platforms to detect uh, those fires uh, when they are small. And we combine these sensors in different platforms because we think different sensors and platforms have uh, different advantages and disadvantages. For example, some of the sensors we are testing are uh, sensors on the ground. These sensors have very limited coverage because they cannot be placed or located across Australia. But because they are so close to the ground, they have higher chances to detect the fire when they is small and as soon as it ignites. So the idea is to locate these uh, sensors in areas, for example, of high ecological value or high fire risk. In the other end, we have satellites. These satellites can see large territories, but uh, they cannot detect yet small fires either because they don't have enough uh, spatial resolution, ground resolution, or they lack of temporal resolution. So they only may fly twice a day over a specific area. So that means that they may miss a lot of uh, fires. So again, combining different sensors in different platforms, we think that we can uh, reach the aim of detected fires when they are small. Sounds like this center is going to be very important for early fire detection, but climate change presents ongoing problems. So can you speak to how it might continue to impact the environment? Well, the problem is that in Australia, fires are getting more severe and frequent. That means that the fire regimes are changing and that is compromising the vegetation to have enough time to recover. And some vegetation is burning again more often than it used to be. And some vegetation like tropical wet forests in Australia are starting to experience bushfires. Similar to Australia's tropical forests, fires are also becoming an increasing problem in the Amazon. When you see the models that indicate what would be the fire regime of an area like the Amazon, we see that fire, it's a very rare event. The Amazon is humid, it shouldn't burn. But what is happening is that human beings are changing this ability of the forest to hold fire and fires are entering in the forest. And these escaped fires end up changing the forest structure, killing trees, opening the canopy. And this humidity that is a very important characteristic of the Amazon, it gets lost and ends up to be a different forest. After the break, we'll speak with Dr. Annie Ellen Carr, Science Director of the Amazon Environmental Research Institute. Together, we'll discuss the problem of fire in the world's largest tropical rainforest. When you were first in university, full of passion for science and tech, how many women were in your classes? And as you progressed, 
From undergrad to specialization, to your first job and beyond, what happened? If you're like most scientists, technicians, engineers, and mathematicians, chances are the higher you climbed in your career, the fewer women you saw around you. But what if I told you, you can help shift this trend? Research demonstrates that mentorship can have a huge impact on a woman's career. By choosing to mentor a young woman in science, you'll help them gain confidence, pursue exciting career opportunities, and even help increase the promotion and earning potential for years to come. Consider joining the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society's Women Mentoring Women program and make a big difference in a young scientist's life. Learn more by visiting grss-i8e.org and select IDEA from the community header menu. Pristine forest looks like for me as a chapel. The trees are tall and the understory is also a little bit tall. So you don't have a lot of seedlings and, and you can almost walk It's cool, it's shady because the canopy is very closed. The noise of the animals, a lot of birds. Sometimes you can be scared, be afraid of stepping on a snake. Or sometimes you even feel some weird different smell that could be a jaguar maybe, I don't know. But uh, because of fire, these areas have a lot of thorns, plants that have thorns, a lot of ants. And um, that was not very pleasant. Welcome back. Today, we're talking about the causes and impacts of fire on two completely different ecosystems, the Australian bush and, as you just heard, the Amazon rainforest. In the first half of the podcast, we spoke with Dr. Marta Yebra, director of the new Australian National University Optus Bushfire Research Centre of Excellence, about fires in Australia. Marta taught us about fuel load and how satellites are used to measure three different properties of the fuel, including the amount of vegetation in an area, the moisture content of the vegetation, and the fuel structure, or the layers of vegetation in an environment. As she shared, being able to assess fuel load and detect fires early is super important for Australia, particularly as fires continue to increase in frequency and severity. Unlike Australia, where fire helps the ecosystems to regenerate, fires are not a natural occurrence in the Amazon. And yet, as you'll hear Dr. Annie Lynn Carr point out, they are becoming more frequent all because of us humans. I'm Annie Allen Carr. I'm a science director at IPAM, the Amazon Environmental Research Institute. I have been working at IPAM for the past 26 years. I coordinate different research within IPAM. Those research include the impacts of land use change on ecosystem services. We have also some research dedicated to smallholders, indigenous peoples, rubber tappers, and how they are 
dealing with climate change. And uh, we are starting a new, how can I say, theme of research in my team, uh, which is dedicated to understand the economics of the land use in the Amazon. Before we get into the details of your research, I want to know, what got you into this work on the Amazon? Well, I'm from the Amazon. So I, I was born in Belém, which is one of the biggest cities of the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon. And I was always curious about how the rivers were formed and how the forest was uh uh, what the difference within the forest. And, and I was very curious about all of these things, and I loved maps. During the undergrad in geography, the disciplines that I liked most were the disciplines linked with cartography, remote sensing, spectroscopy. And during my internship uh, with the group that formed the PAM, I started to get used to work with land with satellite imagery it blew my mind and i i got addicted in a way you know so from there it was just curiosity uh, and from that curiosity came the passion the passion uh, for changing the world uh, the passion to contribute to conservation efforts so i should say that um, this is more or less what brings me here. So today I'm a scientist, but I'm also an activist. Uh, I don't see both things separately. I like how you said passion for changing the world, but the world itself is also changing. Like the fires that are happening in the Amazon, these are natural. So tell me what causes these fires. Yeah, I should say that 100% of the fires in the Amazon are anthropogenic caused. So they came from a human hand. So there are three major types of fire in the, in the region. One is the fire directly related to deforestation, which is part of the process of deforestation. So you have a forest and then you cut down the trees, let it dry, and then people set fire on that. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the major source of greenhouse gas emissions in Brazil, in fact. So the second type of fire is the fire used for management of pasture fields. That is related also to deforestation because in the Amazon, Natural pasture fields, natural grasslands are very rare. So all the pasture fields are planted, which means that people had to chop down forests and convert it to pasture fields. So once these pasture fields are implemented, people use fire to manage these pasture fields. And this fire commonly escapes to bordering forests and start wildfires. Uh, they don't go farther because the forest is humid, but once they reach the first meters of the forest, next year, when that landholder will set fire again to clean the pasture, 
that fire goes farther. And that starts a process of degradation of the forest. The third one is the forest fires, which only happen because people set fires in the deforestation area and also in the pasture fields. So these fires escape and get into the forest. So one is the deforestation fire, is the fire that follows the process of deforestation. The second one is the pasture management fire, the fire used to clean the weeds from a bad managed pastures. And the third one is the forest fires that uh, happen because uh, the fire escapes from the deforestation fire and also the pasture management fires and they escape to bordering forests. I can't believe it. So yeah, it's really all our fault as humans. We we are responsible for this one. And you said that when the Amazon burns, it changes the ecosystem. So what do these ecosystem changes mean for us in terms of climate change? This is a very good question. Fires in the Amazon, they represent the main transformation of carbon that uh, is released to the atmosphere and creates climate change. When we talk about the Amazon, we talk about the importance of the forest to the energy balance of the planet. More than having this huge biodiversity or storing lots, tons of carbon, the Amazon also produces a lot of water. And this water is very important, not only for the region, but to balance these climatic systems. People don't think a lot about the Amazon as a source of water to the globe. The trees are releasing water daily through evapotranspiration. When the trees are, are chopped down, we lose this ability to pump water from the ground and release it to the atmosphere. So we have double impact on climate change. So the release of carbon from the trees to the atmosphere will contribute to global warming and also the ability to not release water will impact the rainfall and will exacerbate the sensation of warming. Wow, I was definitely thinking about the impact of released carbon on the globe, but for some reason, it didn't occur to me that the Amazon also helps regulate water cycles all over the planet. That's a really big deal. Exactly. The Amazon shouldn't burn. So what we need to do for the Amazon is to change the way people use fire in the Amazon. We have to use techniques that manage better the pasture just by rotating the cattle herds and not doing overgrazing, for example. When you do overgrazing, what happens is that the soil starts to be exposed and the weeds come. So when the weeds come, you either have to put some poison to kill the weeds or you burn. So we need to invest in good practices and also we have to reduce deforestation. Well, how, how do we do that? 
Does this relate to your work in the economics of land use change in the Amazon? Yeah, I'm part of a group of an initiative called Map Biomas, which is an initiative to create land use and land cover maps for the entire Brazil. The satellite images, we can see all the processes that take to, for example, land use change and that lead to uh, deforestation, conversion of forests to pasture fields. And, and also we can see where are the conservation areas, for example, indigenous territories and the other protected areas that are facing pressure by mining and things like that. So I think remote sensing products are very important tools for us to capture these dynamics of the landscape. What is changing the landscape? Where are the high priorities for intervention in order, for example, to reduce deforestation? So that's why in my work, we use a lot of this expertise. So, for example, we generate a lot of policy briefs to help engage politicians, or we create uh, some analysis that we help indigenous leaders to position themselves in order to say that we don't want this, we don't want that, we want to protect our land in this area here because it has been invaded. Uh, in a process of thinking about what to do in terms of reaching sustainability in the Amazon. And I'm going to give you a, a single example of that. Recently, we launched a report that uh, got the tenure categories in the Amazon, and we identify that 51% of everything that, is, that has been deforested in the past years in the region is happening in public lands. And this is very important because part of this public land is undesignated lands, which means that part of the um, considerable part of the deforestation is happening because people are invading uh, public lands that were not designated to a specific use. Basically, this is illegal deforestation. So it can help the government in a way to think about the ways to deal with deforestation, this type of deforestation, and where this type of deforestation is happening. So in your view, what can we do now to better manage fires and degradation and support conservation in, in the Amazon? I think the entire society needs to engage in conserving the Amazon. And when I'm talking about conservation, Amazon conservation, I'm not talking about putting a fence and not using the resources. I'm talking about having a, a better way to interact with nature. And everybody has a role on that. We all can do something about it. Unfortunately, the decisions about the Amazon are taken by governments. But governments are put there by people. So this is one way we can help the Amazon through the vote. The other thing that we can do is watch better what we eat. So the consumption of food is very important in this process. 
because the Amazon has been deforested to produce beef or more recently soybean. The, the soybean produced in the Amazon is used to feed, for example, animals in China. It's not used to feed Brazilians. If we as a society pay more attention to where are the, the products we are eating are coming from, we also will help to pressure the companies that buy this food to have a better compliance with environmental rules and environmental laws and things like that. So I think we can do a lot, but we need to have the engagement of the government. And we have to remember that we put the government there. And this is really where international collaboration comes in, both in terms of the science as well as in government accountability. So what do you think researchers and decision makers can learn from other countries in terms of fire management and conservation? Well, I, I have to say that we have other ecosystems in Brazil that are fire adapted, such as the Cerrado, which is one huge savanna that we have here in our country, Pantanal, which is a big wetland that we also have uh, here. So those areas, they are just like Australia. They are adapted to fire. And we need a lot to learn with Australia, for example, because people, unfortunately, uh, are not doing a lot of prescribed burns to reduce the fuel load. But I think other areas, such as Congo, for example, where the forest also uh, starts to be more susceptible to fire, or Indonesia, where the forest, the peat forest there, burn once in a while. I think we need to create a network of research and also of lessons learned from fire management and fire control in these rainforests affected by fire areas. We always need to try to learn from the experiences in other countries. In terms of fire detection, for example, trials that happen in a specific area or a specific country can be translated and proof if they work in, in another country or a different environment. That's why collaboration between countries is also very essential. And there are, for example, a satellite mission, uh, WalfarSat, uh, that the Canadian Space Agency is about to be completed and launched in, in the next coming seven years or so. And it is very important for Australia to keep a very close eye on how that mission goes and, and see if uh, the different countries can also collaborate and complement each other because, of course, uh, launching a satellite mission is uh, quite an expensive investment. Again, it's, it's learning, but it's also collaboration. So what one specific country or research do can potentially also benefit others. It's evident that the climate change is affecting bushfires in terms of the frequency, but also the severity of the fires. And this is only going to get worse. 
we can, of course, invest in early fire detection. We can invest on better fire risk monitoring systems. We can invest on better land management strategies. But nothing really is going to make a huge difference if we don't really tackle the underpinning problem that is climate change. So if we don't take street measurements to tackle climate change and decrease the increases in temperature and drought, there is not much we could do because yeah, the conditions are just getting worse and worse. So what keeps you positive about this work? Well, um, in terms of remote sensing data, I guess uh, what keeps me motivated is that it always provides better information. And of course, the better the information uh, you provide to land managers, the better decision they can uh, take under a bushfire event or or similar uh, catastrophic events. So, and uh, if we can provide tools for detecting fires early uh, from satellites or other sensors, as I discussed uh, before, we can give them more time and higher chances for the first attack to be successful. The good thing is that there's still hope. As Annie mentions, we know the recipe for change. We just have to enact it. I always remember when I started to work back to the 90s, at that moment, the rate of deforestation was very, very high. An average of 20,000 square kilometers a year, which is huge. I never thought I could be alive to see Brazil reaching a rate below 10,000 square kilometers a year of deforestation. I never thought that would be possible. And in 2005, a lot of things changed. We had policies in place, good monitoring working, good uh, governance put in place to really like reduce deforestation. And we went below 10,000 square kilometers and we almost got to 4,000 square kilometers in 2012. So that was possible. And that was in a moment when Brazil was exporting a lot of soybean, uh, producing a lot of meat, which means that protecting the land and the forest didn't impact economic activities such as cattle ranching and soybean production. Because of that, I think that it's possible to come back because we know the recipe. We need political will. Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. Want to learn more about Dr. Marta Yebra and Dr. Annie Ellen Carr? Listeners can follow me and the progress of my research on Twitter at mjebra12 and also in LinkedIn as uh, Marta Yebra. You can take a look on our webpage, ipam.org.br. And also, if you want to access the data that we produce, you can also go to mapbiomas.org and then you will be enchanted with the amount of data about land use change from Brazil. Be sure to follow the Down to Earth podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and send some love to our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. 
This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Heather McNairn and Sean Kipover for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.